Sketches from Scripture presents. What is discipleship? If you are part of a church, you may have heard the term disciple or discipleship before. But what does it mean? What is a discipleship group? Is being a disciple a strictly Christian thing? What's the difference in being a student and being a disciple? How does one become a disciple? What does it look like? What are our responsibilities? Is it for everyone? How important is it? This four-part series will cover the basics of being a disciple of Christ, what it means to trust and follow Jesus. We'll standardize an extensive vocabulary, envision a fully mature disciple, and talk through the process of growing spiritually as a disciple and parenting others. The information we'll discuss is largely taken from North Boulevard Church of Christ's Discipling Handbook, which can be downloaded for free at northboulevard.com dbs. We're looking at the Discipling Handbook from... North Boulevard. And so I have put in the comments there, I've pinned a link that is the link to the PDF. So if you don't have the PDF yet, I'm going to have it on screen tonight. And depending on what size device you're looking at, you might be able to just read it right off the screen. But it would be great if you downloaded the PDF and uh, had it uh, for yourself to reference whenever you like. Uh, It can be printed, but it's like full color. And so it may not be something that you necessarily want to print. Um, And I think you can contact North Boulevard and I think they'll just probably just mail you one, send you one uh, if you just ask for it. If you got the PDF, go ahead and open it up. We're going to pick right up where we left off. Again, we're asking what is discipleship? And so just very quickly from last night, we talked about what is a disciple? What does that mean? We talked about the importance of needing to have the same definitions so that we're, you know, sort of all on the same page and, um, know what each other is talking about when we use certain words so that words vocabulary is important for us to be able to talk about something and describe something and understand something but it's important that we use the same words to talk about and describe that thing uh we talked about how we need to have some kind of process that we uh all understand again not that everybody has to do exactly the same thing but it just gives us a a reference point and so we were, we want to look for something that is biblical and reproducible and uh, something that we can remember. And so we'll be getting into that um, probably in part three, the actual full process. We're still doing a lot of sort of definitions and understanding tonight. Uh, and then we talked about what is the vision? What is the vision for what mature discipleship looks like? We need to be aligned on that. And uh, we put up as our vision, you know, Jesus as the perfect disciple maker. Paul is another example of a great disciple maker. Timothy as an example of someone who was discipled by Paul and created his own disciples and was a church leader. And so we look particularly at 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2, where Paul tells Timothy, um, take the things that I've taught you, give them to reliable people so they can teach others also. And so you've got from Paul to Timothy to reliable people, to others also, four generations of disciple-making disciples. And so until you have those three and four generations following you of disciples who are making disciples, then you've still got some spiritual maturity uh, left uh, to grow into. So let's just pick right back up where we left off last night in the Discipling Handbook. We had just 
kind of uh, very quickly talked about what a disciple is. So we said a disciple is not a student. A student is is someone who learns something. A disciple is someone who learns how to do something. So as it says here in the book, a disciple is an apprentice, someone that learns how to do something from someone else. So it's not someone that learns how to do something from a book or a YouTube video or a manual uh, or something like that. But it's uh, someone who learns something from a master. They're an apprentice. They're learning from someone else that already understands how to do it. And so we saw Matthew 4, 19. These are the first words that Jesus has to his disciples in the gospel of Matthew. He says, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. So he's, he gives us something to do. Follow me. In other words, go where I go, do what I do. Hear the things that I preach about. Hear the stories that I tell. Watch the signs that I that I give. Know who I am. Spend time with me. Follow me. And if you do that, something will happen. What will happen? Well, I will make you. In other words, I will change you. I will change you from something that you are now into something that you will be. And so what is that thing that you're going to change me into? Uh, I will make you fishers of men. And so what is, or fish, fishing for people, fish, fishers of people. I'm going to turn you into someone that does what I do. I'm going to turn you into someone that goes out and brings people in so that they can follow me. And so um, we have this uh, sort of thing that continues on. And so we have um, a decision to follow Jesus. We have um, a, a changing that happens as Jesus changes us while we follow him. And then we commit to his mission to do what he does. And so uh, the guys at Real Life Church in Idaho have given us this this uh, thinking of the, the head, the heart, and the hands. The follow me, that's the head. That's the making of the decision the, the, that Jesus changes us. When he says, I will make you, that is the heart. That is the changing of the heart through the Holy Spirit. And then the hands, that is being committed to the mission of Jesus, going out and doing what he did. And so the head, the heart, and the hands are all represented here in Matthew 4, 19. Follow me, I will make you fishers of men. And so sort of the conclusion here is that based on these three parts, kind of going down the bottom of the page here. Uh, a disciple, this apprentice of Jesus, this is someone who is following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and committed to the mission of Jesus. So the big green text there at the bottom of uh, page two on the right-hand side there in the bottom right corner, a disciple is following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and is committed to to the mission of Jesus. So there you see, again, the head, the heart, and the hands. Follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Again, these are the first words that Jesus says to his disciples in the gospel of Matthew. They're not the first words that Jesus says, and they're not the first words of the gospel. First words of uh, Jesus's ministry is a couple of verses before that in 417, where he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in, in other words, change your hearts and minds, change your life, because the reign of God is approaching. The reign of God has shown up. Here I am. That's Matthew 4, 17. Right after that, as he's calling his first disciples, he tells them, follow me. I will turn you into fishers for people. So now we kind of have an idea of what a disciple does, what a disciple is. It's someone who's following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and committed to the mission of Jesus. So what is that mission? Well, that mission of fishing for people. And we use the terminology, of course, making disciples, or as we talked about last night, growing disciples. 
So now we're going to look here on the left page, <clears throat> page three. Um, and this is making disciples. And so the question is, how do we make disciples? Well, we want to do what Jesus did when it comes to making disciples or growing disciples. Or I like to use the word disciple just as a verb, as an active verb, when we're discipling people. How do we disciple people? What does that mean? How do we do it? How do I disciple someone? So we look here at, um, you know, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Here we have it in the NIV. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. A couple of things that I want to point out about this text. First of all, as I mentioned last night, in English, the word go is an imperative, but in Greek, it is not. It's a participle, going. So the the Jesus's uh, language here actually doesn't begin to go. It begins going, make disciples. In other words, as you go, it sort of assumes that you're going. So as you're going, as you go, make disciples. Or in, again, in the Greek, it's one word, disciple. Disciple all people, all nations. And Part of discipling means you're going to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So they're, they're going to have to commit to a lifestyle of repentance, and they're going to show their commitment to following Jesus in baptism. And you're going to teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Now, notice it doesn't say, teach them everything I have commanded you. It says, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Teach them to observe. So this is going to be a critical part of understanding discipling. Discipling is not having Bible studies with people, okay? You should study the Bible as part of discipling somebody, but that's obvious. But that's not it. That's not all there is. If all you do is sit down and have a Bible class with somebody, you're giving them knowledge. They're a student. They're not a disciple. If they, to, again, to quote uh, Ted Gobble, who's often uh, part of these lessons, if you look in the Bible and you see what you look like when you look into scripture and you walk away and don't do anything about it, then what good was it, right? So this is what James says in in uh, the book of James, the letter of James. So um, you've got to obey. That's, that's the real key thing here is to be able to read the scripture and obey. So discipling, if you are just doing a Bible study, that's about knowledge. You've got a student, you don't have a disciple. But if you're teaching them to observe what Jesus taught, if you're teaching them to obey what Jesus commanded, that's someone now who is learning how to do something by watching you. So they're going to watch you, not just in as you're reading scripture with each other and sharing with each other, but they're going to watch you in your obedience. And they're going to watch you model that for them. And that's going to create some accountability for yourself. So in the same way that many of you uh, sort of went to a new level of being a human being when you had your own children, uh, it sort of unlocked this new part of being a human being when you had this own children, this new level of love you didn't know you could experience and this new level of, you know, something depending on you that maybe you had never really experienced before. You'll experience that same thing at a spiritual level when you begin to disciple people. You'll be held accountable because there are people who there that you're trying to bring up. And uh, it's really critical. It's a really critical part of discipleship. So uh, again, these are Jesus's last words to his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew. So his first words to his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew are, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And in the end of the Gospel of Matthew, these are his last words. Now you go, as you go, make disciples of everyone. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey 
everything that I have commanded you. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, now you go out, you do what I did, get other people to follow me, get other people to be changed, get other people to be committed to my mission. What mission? Of making disciples so that they will find people who will follow me, who will be changed, who will make disciples, who will follow me, who will be changed, etc. For generation after generation. It, you know, it started with 11 guys, right? 12 minus Judas. It started with Jesus, one man. It started with 11 uh, disciples. And uh, now there's just been billions of Christians throughout the last 2,000 years. And it's only because discipling has happened. That's the only way that can happen. It has to keep going. So when we're talking about making disciples, that's what we're talking about is fishing for people, going out and sharing with other people how they can follow Jesus and uh, how they can grow as part of that and helping hold them accountable. So what we what we see here, and we'll, and we'll get into more detail on this when we get into the actual uh, process. So let's go down and look at sort of the rest of this page here, but it says, uh, these verses provide clarity on disciple making. Uh, within the Greek text of these verses, there's the one imperative command to disciple, to make disciples, and then three participles describing how we do it. Go, going, baptizing, and teaching, teaching to obey, teaching to, to observe. And with this scripture in mind, we can define disciple making with these four ideas that we're helping people, that uh, we are uh, building trust, and we're trusting in the Lord, that we are following Jesus and others are following us as we follow Jesus, and that Jesus is the object and focus of discipleship. So it all boils down to this phrase right here on the bottom of this, of this left page, Disciple-making means helping people trust and follow Jesus. Disciple-making means helping people trust and follow Jesus. Help people to trust and follow Jesus. Helping people trust and follow Jesus. I keep saying that over and over again, because if you can remember only that, that will be a big get for you in this moment. Help others trust and follow Jesus. If you can remember that phrase, then you've got, you're well on your way to really understanding what disciple making is, what discipleship is. Help other people trust and follow Jesus. Why don't you say it with me? You're home alone. Nobody can hear you. So just say it with me. Help others trust and follow Jesus. Help others trust and follow Jesus. Okay. So uh, I'm just going to keep hammering that into your brain. That is the, um, um, the, 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 the big takeaway here. So now let's look at this uh, next page on the right here, page four, the discipleship lifestyle. So uh, we've just really introduced the concept of making disciples, and we've given you a good sort of executive summary, right? You're helping other people trust and follow Jesus, helping others trust and follow Jesus. Okay, so let's talk about the discipleship lifestyle, and let's talk about sort of what that means. So um, the first paragraph here, which is uh, in the small text under the heading of the discipleship lifestyle, it says, disciple making is not an event or an activity. So I think this is important to uh, pause and talk about for just a little bit. I think when people first approach discipleship, certainly when churches, church leaders, church staff, um, people active in their churches that really want to be part of discipleship, they want to understand what it is, they want to do it. I think when they first get into it, they have one question, and that is, what do I do? Right? Okay, what do I do? Tell me what to do. Show me what to do. I think, I don't know if this is just like an American thing or if this is something that's just a human thing, but but this was my question. This was our staff's question at North Boulevard. What, what do we do? Show us what we do, right? And anyone who has been doing disciple making, anyone who has been discipling others, 
<laughs> you can't answer that question. It would be like if there was, um, you know, a, a, um, young couple, maybe the, 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 they've just been married and, uh, the, the young man is, is 19 years old. Young couple, young married couple, and the wife has just found out she's pregnant. And so the 19 year old man is freaking out, was not ready for this yet. And he goes to uh, his father, his uncle, his grandfather, someone that has experience raising children. And he goes to this older person that has experience and he says, okay, we're going to have this baby. Tell me what to do. <laughs> I mean, you see what an absurd question that is in that context, right? Okay. I'm going to have a baby. What do I do? Okay. Now, certainly there are many things you need to do, right? And there are some lists. Uh, there are, I don't know how many thousands of books out there about what to do in order to be a, a parent of a baby, right? So in the same way, spiritually, there's a lot to do with discipling. There's a lot to do as a disciple maker. But if that's your question that you think is going to unlock this for you, I got to tell you, it's the wrong question. It's not a bad question. It's an expected question. And it you will find things to do a little later. In fact, this very handbook has a list of things that you ought to do and really should do. But uh, what we must understand first is that disciple making is not an event or an activity. It is a lifestyle of helping people trust and follow Jesus. Okay. And that lifestyle is characterized by the six elements that we find right here on this page. So I'm going to scroll up and get the, uh, so we can see all six of them on the page there. So we're still on the right-hand side here, the discipleship lifestyle. So uh, just very quickly, and I will let you download the PDF and read all these. I'm not going to read them to you because I got another thing that I want to get to tonight. Um, but you've got the Father, Son, and Spirit. You've got relationships. You've got intentionality. You've got the Bible. You've got journey and you've got multiplication. Now, if you don't have all six of these things, then um, you don't really have discipleship, okay? So, uh, uh, and by the way, I should just say that uh, these come from um, a book from Bobby Harrington and the late Josh Patrick uh, called The Disciple Maker's Handbooks, put out by Zondervan. And um, you can see the credit there on the, on the PDF, but I just want to give an audible credit while we're recording these. So uh, you've got these, these six elements, Father, Son, and Spirit, relationships, intentionality, Bible, journey, and multiplication. You must really have these six things going on, or it's not really discipleship, okay? So if you've got Father, Son, and Spirit, and you've got intentionality, and you've got the Bible, maybe you've even got journey, okay, you might have a good Bible study, but if it's not multiplying, it's not discipleship, okay? Um you might have relationships and, and journey and uh, father, son, and spirit, and you might have a good church small group or life group or something like that. But if you don't also have Bible and multiplication, again, it's not discipleship, okay? Uh, if you have relationships and journey and multiplication, but you don't have Bible or father, son, and spirit, you might have Amway, all right? or an essential oils, something, or Tupperware, right? But you don't have discipleship. So you really got to have all six of these things for, for it to be discipleship. So it needs to be centered around uh, Jesus uh, of the Bible, uh, Father, Son, and Spirit. It needs to include relationships, life-on-life -life connections. It needs to be intentional. Intentionality is the vehicle that's going to drive um, uh, discipleship and really, really make it happen. Without, without uh, intentionality, 
Uh, you'll never get any journey and you'll never get any multiplication. Uh, it's got to be centered around the Bible. This is not just feel-gooderies. This is not just uh, people sharing their stories with each other. I mean, you can have all those things, but it's got to really be centered on the Bible. There has, there, ha, there has to be a journey. People need to grow and change. Remember, Jesus says, follow me, not come to where I am and hang out, right? Jesus says, follow me. Jesus is on the move and we're following him. And there really has to be multiplication. And I think multiplication is the big thing that we really miss. And multiplication is hard because we don't like for things to change. So when we get a good small group and we like the three or four people that are in our group, we don't want anybody else to come in and we don't want anybody to leave. All right. But if we are thinking from the perspective of a disciple maker, that we, we must be thinking about multiplication and we must uh, not only um, prepare ourselves for, but we must we must expect, we must desire for people to leave the group. We must desire for new people to come in. We must desire for multiplication and growth and change. Uh, without cellular division, a zygote does not become a baby, which does not become an adult, right? And so we must have what looks like division, but really is growth, right? And so that's why we call it multiplication rather than division, right? It's multiplication because there's growth happening. There's more things there than were before. So you got to have all six of these things, um, for it to be discipleship. So that is the discipleship lifestyle. Okay, going on to the next page, next two pages, actually, the discipleship contexts. So I don't have time to cover this in depth uh, that I would like to, but I will tell you how I do cover it in depth when I do have that kind of time. And so a good place to go to understand discipleship contexts is Luke 9 and 10. Luke 9 and 10. Luke 9 begins with Jesus sending the 12 out on uh, mission two by two to the, the villages where Jesus is going to go and preach. And he tells them, you know, don't don't take any any money or an extra cloak or anything with you. Don't take any food. Find Find a house of peace and when somebody accepts you, eat the food they give you and, and those sorts of things. Um, later in chapter nine, there is the feeding of the 5,000. There's some other things with, with Herod and some other, some other uh, followers and things like that. And then in Luke chapter 10, you have Jesus sending out the 72. And he gives them essentially the same basic instructions of going into towns and uh, looking for places of peace, etc. And um, so this is Luke 9 and 10. So uh, I'm going to talk about just those stories real quick. And, and again, we're not going to take time to read them, but that's where they are. Beginning of Luke 9, Jesus sends out the 12. Later in Luke 9, you have the feeding of the 5,000. And at the beginning of Luke 10, you have uh, the sending out of the 72. So a um, couple things about the feeding of the 5,000. So in your recollection, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, there's probably a couple of things that you may not remember and some other things that you may not have really thought about or sort of picked up on. And there's also connections about the feeding of the 5,000 with other gospels like the gospel of John that are important to fully interpret the feeding of the 5,000 story. So if you've watched any of the other series that I've done, one thing you know is that to have a good theology, a complete theology, it has to include all of scripture. So you can't develop 
uh, a complete theology on the feeding of the 5,000 without reading all the different variations of it. And John has more to say about the feeding of the 5,000 than the synoptics do. And so we need to know that. We need to know what John has to say and decide uh, what that might mean for how we interpret Luke 9 and 10. Something that a lot of people don't notice in Luke uh, 9, the feeding of the 5,000, is the first thing that Jesus does is he has them all sit down in groups of 50 each. Isn't that interesting? So you got 5,000 people, right? But the first thing that Jesus does is he has them all sit down in groups of 50 each. So when you think about 12 guys going and passing all this food out to 5,000 people, it seems like just a big crowd and it just seems like, how would that ever be done? And it seems very impersonal. I mean, you think about how we do communion on Sunday mornings where you've got, you know, hundreds of people sitting in the pews and we've got eight or 10 guys that are just passing plates and kind of going back and forth and it's all quiet. Nobody speaks to each other anyway. It's just sort of the nature of the thing. But uh, that's not what happens here. Jesus has been teaching. It's gotten late. They're hungry. Jesus says, you feed them. They have essentially a happy meal, right? They've got this very small amount of food. And Jesus, through his uh, powers as the creator of the universe, miraculously multiplies the food in order to feed everyone. Now, who feeds the 5,000? Obviously, Jesus supplies the power for the miracle, but who does the actual handing out of the food? It's not Jesus. Jesus doesn't do it. It's the disciples. The disciples do it. Who collects all the baskets of leftovers? Is it Jesus? No, it's the disciples who do it, right? Okay. And and I'm not super sure. You'd have to look at all the variations of it, and I I haven't read them very recently to to, to really recall, but I don't know that we know for sure that the 5,000 people even understood a miracle was happening as it was happening. I mean, I don't think there's anything in the text that necessarily specifically tells us that. I, I could be wrong on that. But what we do know is the disciples knew. They knew all they all we had is this one sack lunch, you know? The disciples knew. We, we're not, we don't even know for sure if the 5,000 people knew, right? So he has the, the 5,000 all sit down in groups of 50. Now, if you think about that, you've got 100 groups of 50. Now you got 12 guys for 100 groups. Each of these 12 guys would have, what, eight, nine groups apiece. Now, doesn't that start to seem a lot more manageable? And can't you imagine if, uh, you know, I'm Bartholomew and these are my eight groups, don't you think I would kind of know the, the the family patriarch of, of this group of 50? Don't you think I would meet probably, you know, make one or two out of each of these groups, maybe walk away with maybe 10 new friends? I can't, I mean, can't you imagine that happening? We don't see that that happens in scripture, okay? I'm not trying to read things into scripture that aren't, that aren't there. What I'm trying to do is paint a picture for you of this very real thing that really happened. I've stood on the ground where this happened. Uh, around the the, the uh, Lake Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee in Israel. I've been there. So this is a real thing that happened in a real place to real people. And so we need to imagine it as it really would have occurred on that evening. Right? So you can imagine, we don't know if this happened, but you could imagine that the 12 apostles probably got to know some of the people that they were interacting with as they're passing out food and as they're collecting the baskets of leftovers. You could imagine that happening, right? So that's why I think it's very interesting by the time you get to Luke 10, that now Jesus sends out 72 on the exact same mission that he sent out the 12 at the beginning of Luke 9. Okay, so let's keep talking about, uh, I'll come back to that. Let's keep talking about the feeding of the 5,000 for just a second. So if you go over to Gospel of John and look at the feeding of the 5,000, what we learn is that Jesus 
goes away, and the people, having been fed, want to be fed again. Again, I don't think there's any indication that they saw that it was a miraculous sign. Maybe they did, but but the big thing was they got food. That was what they were after, was the food. So they go after Jesus and say, essentially, do it again. Feed us again, and we'll make you king. Jesus says, uh, if you want me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Well, that sounds bonkers to all the people. And everyone leaves. John tells us. John tells us everyone leaves. So the 5,000, Jesus does this sign to 5,000 people. We think, oh, what a great ministry. He just witnessed his power to 5,000 people. But we learn from John, the very next thing that happens is all of those people desert him, except for who? The 12. They're the only ones left. And one of my favorite parts of scripture, Jesus turns around to the 12. Can you imagine having a church of 5,000 people and in one Sunday, after one potluck, they all leave. They all desert you. And you turn around and there's only 12 men left. And Jesus says to them, what about you? Are you going to leave too? And Peter, who we give a hard time for some of the boneheaded things that he says, says this very, very beautiful thing in the Gospel of John. Peter says, where else would we go? You have the words that give life. It's beautiful, right? So what we know about the feeding of the 5,000 is that those 5,000 people didn't get it. <laughs> they all abandoned Jesus. Okay, so was the feeding of the 5,000, was that for the 5,000? Doesn't seem so. The disciples did the feeding. The disciples did the gathering. 12 baskets of leftovers, one basket for each disciple. And after everyone deserted Jesus, the only people that were left were the 12. So when you look at the Gospel of John, what you learn about the feeding of the 5,000 is that the feeding of the 5,000 really wasn't for the 5,000, but it was for the disciples. It was so that they would learn. It was so that they would be part of ministry, so that they would experience the joy of serving in ministry and the heartbreak of people who desert you in ministry. It seems from John's account that the feeding of the 5,000 was more about the disciples than it was about the 5,000. So now you go back to Luke 9 and 10, and you see at the beginning of Luke 9, Jesus sending the 12 out in pairs, the feeding of the 5,000 in the middle, and then at the beginning of Luke 10, Jesus sends out 72. Well, who are these other people? Where did they come from? Scripture does not tell us. So I'm not telling you this is where they came from, okay? I'm really suggesting, based on the way the Gospel of Luke is written and the events that occur, and again, if you read all of Luke 9 and 10, I think it will make even more sense than the way I'm describing it to you. But So, so we don't know for sure where these 72 occur, but I submit these might be people that the 12 met as part of the feeding of the 5,000. Because 72 is a multiple of what? Oh, 12. Isn't that interesting? So what you start to see as you kind of back out and look at these large swaths of text and look at the whole story and factor in all of your knowledge and all of your theology from all the other stories of the Bible, what you begin to see is Jesus's method. Okay, so sometimes we get so down in a verse that we lose sight of context. But even outside of context, there's the context of the whole scripture. And then even outside of that, there is methodology. There is method. There's Jesus's method. And when we're talking about what is discipleship or how do I disciple somebody, what we're asking is what was Jesus's method? And so Luke 9 and 10 shows us 
some important things, I think, about Jesus's method, that he starts with the 12, he engages them in some kind of ministry where they're able to meet other people, they gather some more people along the way, and then they're able to send them out on mission, the hope that one day they would become disciples just like the 12. Okay, so with that in mind, let's go back to the discipling handbook, and let's look at this idea of discipleship contexts. So we have uh, first, uh, let me let me pull up uh, so we can see the bottom of this. So you're going to be able to see that now. Yeah. So you'll see five uh, things over here on the left-hand side. You'll see where it says public, social, personal, transparent, and divine. So let's just start at the top. Public, this is, you know, about 70 plus people or so. This is going to be the total church assembly and beyond. This is going to be, uh, you know, people that you work with. This is going to be your neighbors. This might be your family. People out in the world. Uh, this is going to be your entire church congregation if your church is larger than 70 people. Because let's face it, even, even in a church like the one that I grew up here in Cleveland, um, you know, we've got throughout the years, anywhere between 250 and 450 people at Central, even at 250 people, like I didn't know everybody, you know, you just can't know that many people, like truly know them. I mean, you might know their name or recognize them or know, oh, I go to church with that person if you see them at Walmart or whatever, but you don't, you don't know them, right? So at some point past 70, you just really aren't able to sort of keep up with people and, and, and the, the, the group becomes so diverse that it's it's uh, only going to sustain events, essentially, right? So the public level, you're going to get your Sunday morning service and uh, some big church-wide events and things like that. But that's really the scale that we're talking about with public is total church assembly and beyond. Next down from that, a little smaller, is the social context. Now, this might be a class. This might be a ministry. This might be a missional community. We're looking at 20 to 70 people. So you don't have to know everything about every person in this context, in the social context. But the idea is that you would all be bound together by by some common thing. So maybe it's the an adult class or a teenage class at church would have about 20 to 70 people in it. Uh, it might be a particular ministry like a campus ministry, a college ministry, or it might be like uh, at North Boulevard Meals on Wheels, I think probably has uh, 20 to 70 people that volunteer with Meals on Wheels uh, certainly by the time you factor in all the people that they're feeding would be somewhere around that number. But they're bound together by a common mission of some kind. You might have a group that goes on a mission trip together or something like that. And they might be, if it's a large group, like my brother takes the entire youth group or a large portion of the youth group to uh, the orphanage in Mexico. They have limited number of seats or whatever, but they, they take somewhere between, you know, 50 and 100 kids, I guess. And so you're around sort of that missional community size and so that's the social context is a, a class, a ministry, a missional community, 20 to 70 people. The next context down is personal. Now, this is where you really know the other people in the group. So this is six to 20 people. So again, if you've got 10 couples, that's 20 people, right? If you've got three couples and there are two children each, right? That's, that's right in this personal, uh, in this personal zone. So we're talking about life groups. We're talking about um, people who know each other. They live life together. This is real life on life kind of stuff. Eat together, 
you know, there's first and last names, you know, where everybody works, you know, where they're going to school, you know, um, you're praying for people in their family, uh, you know, when they're, when they're out of work or looking for a job, these kinds of things, you, you're in their personal business. They've, and because they have let you, you have a personal relationship with them. This is, uh, we, we have certain neighbors here in the neighborhood. We have some that we just talk and sort of wave at. And then there's some that, uh, you know, our next door neighbor across the street over here always brings mom and dad a jar of green beans and, and mom and dad have met our family and things like that. There's, there's a different relationship going on with her. The guy that lives behind us, uh, works at the university here and uh, he will share, uh, about his trips overseas. He brought chocolate back from Europe one time. They have, they have a personal relationship. Okay. It's not an extremely close relationship, but they live life together and uh, they know each other and they know what things are going on. So again, for a lot of us, our small groups at church or our life groups uh, are going to fill this role six to 20 people. The context below that is the transparent context. This is the really important one. This is two to five people and it really should be single gender. So all guys or all gals. This is at North Bulldog, we call discipling groups or D groups. Uh, a lot of churches have D groups of some kind. And this is where real vulnerability and deep accountability can thrive. This is where people are willing to be transparent. So that means that there's going to be some confidentiality there. So there's some boundaries uh, where things don't leave the group so that people feel comfortable sharing. And because they have those boundaries, because there is sort of that, that confidentiality, then people can, can be transparent and can be vulnerable and can uh, talk about things that they don't get to talk about anywhere else. Maybe not even in their marriage, maybe not even with their family, maybe not even with their, their best friends or their significant other. So it provides them a place to really talk about some important things that they may not get to talk about anywhere else. Very, very important. And uh, so that is that transparent group. And again, we call that D groups, discipling groups. And the last one is divine. And that is uh, just one person. That's you alone with God. That's you alone with um, the, the Bible. That's, that's the Holy Spirit discipling you one-on-one. -on -one. This is your private disciplines. This is your reading and prayer time. This is your fasting and giving. Um, this is your, your Sabbath rest and your, your, your joy and celebration and your attitude. This is the Holy Spirit discipling you one-on-one -on -one with the convictions that, uh, you feel when, uh, the, the Holy Spirit is, is pushing you and God is speaking to you. And this is, um, the learning that you get from the study of God's word. So these are the five contexts, public, social, personal, transparent, and divine. Now, Churches historically have been pretty good at the public thing. I mean, North Boulevard, man, we got public down. We've been a large church for a while. We've got great programs for, you know, the whole church. We've got multiple campuses going on. We got great programs for our community. We've got a uh, uh, vacation Bible school, which is awesome. We get, we knock Easter out of the park every year. We got helicopters and throwing eggs and all kinds of stuff. It's really something else. Christmas, we usually have some, some big, uh, thing where we invite the community and that sort of thing. We, we do, we do public really well. Larger churches are geared to do public really well because they got the resources and they got the reach and um, they're known around town and that sort of, that sort of thing. But e even just if you're talking about Sunday morning service, most churches do Sunday morning service good. In fact, most churches focus primarily on the Sunday morning service, less so on Wednesday night and Sunday night, but those would still be part of that public arena. 
social, a lot of churches are pretty good at that. So you've got a lot of people involved in Sunday morning worship and a little less people involved in Sunday school. All right. And so we still have Sunday school, Sunday classes of some kind. A lot of churches do, not all churches do, but most churches still have that. And uh, so whether it's classes or whether it's a campus ministry or whatever, we generally get some good participation and some regularity going to that. They're typically run by people who care about that sort of thing. So our Sunday school ministry at North Boulevard, there's somebody on staff that kind of just makes sure that things are happening and does some organizational things. But but they're really run by the people that run the class. So uh, my friends, Jonathan and Katie, they uh, run a class and they don't teach. They make sure that they have a teacher for their class, but they're the ones that keep up with the email group and keep track of everybody. And it's really, they're really great. They're really great at it. And so it's done by a sense of ownership of uh, people who aren't staff. So that's really great. So again, a lot of churches pretty good at the social thing, classes, ministries, that sort of thing. Personal. Some churches are good at life groups. Some churches are not. A lot of churches do this. They have small group. Hey, we're launching small groups. They do a small group relaunch. They do that for a month or two. Small groups run out of curriculum. People don't know how to do small groups. People don't know how to teach people how to do small groups. Small groups turn into people just hanging out with each other and not going through the book and whatever. And then it fizzles out, goes to instead of once a week, it's once every other week. And then it's once a month. And then it's for the Super Bowl. And then it, and then six months, eight months, a year later, hey, let's relaunch small groups. That's what typically happens in a church. And so we're good at, again, the organizational part. We're good at the program part. We're not good at what do you do when you get there, right? We're not good at the discipling part. And so that brings me to the transparent part, which this is the thing that churches are really bad at right now. Yeah, well, I'd like to say that we're bad at it. We would be bad at it if we did it. <laughs> Most churches aren't even doing it, aren't even doing it enough to be called bad at it, right? And so the transparent one is, is the, the really key thing. And I want to call attention to something that I skipped earlier, this green text right under the main heading at the top. It says, the smaller the setting, the deeper the transformation. The smaller the setting, the deeper the transformation. Well, if that's true, then that transparent group is going to be the most important. Well, of course, it's the most important. It's the place where you can really intentionally study scripture one-on-one. -on -one. It's the place where you can bring all the stuff that's really eating away at you and lay it down in front of your brothers who are going to pray over you and show you mercy and grace and forgiveness and accountability and discipline, right? So, of course, that's where the greatest transformation is going to happen. Uh, in, in the churches that I've grown up in, many churches, not talking about any specific church, talking about all of them. I think we've had this mindset for a long time that transformation is going to happen because people respond to the sermon on Sunday morning. Now, why in the world would we think that one man speaking in front of a room of hundreds of people is going to touch me so deeply that I'm going to want to go up front and divulge everything going on in my life to these hundreds of strangers? Sometimes that happens, and it's great when that happens, and we pray for those people, and we pray with those people. But if you think about it, that's, that's really kind of an insane ask for somebody that is dealing with uh, sin or hurt or whatever they're going through. But what if they had three or four people that they were really close with, that they spent an hour or more with every week who knew everything that was going on? Wouldn't that be the ideal place to say, ah, here's what I'm dealing with. And then those people could say, hey, we see that you're dealing with that. Let's pray about that for you. Or let's, let's, let's help you with that. Let's, let's read some about that. Or let's, let's hold you accountable for that. That's the place where that transformation is really going to happen. Right. So uh, one uh, principle I'll introduce here and we'll get to it more in lesson number three. There is revelation and there is transformation. God provides both. God provides revelation and God provides transformation. But there is a bridge between the two. There's a bridge between revelation and transformation.
And that is obedience. So when God reveals something to you from scripture, if you really want to be transformed, you've got to obey what has been revealed to you. That's how you get to transformation. And so the greater transformation is going to happen in the smallest setting. And that is in that transparent setting. So this is the thing that we're, when we're asking, uh, what does discipleship mean? What does it mean to make disciples? We're looking at how can we incorporate this transparent context into the things that we want to do. Very quickly, we'll look at the right-hand side of this page and then we'll be done for the evening. These are the three things that we suggest at North Boulevard. We suggest a community, a family, and a mentor. Um, or if you uh, want to use sports language, a team, a squad, and a coach, right? Um, or uh, yeah, so if you um, if you're part of a, a home church, a congregation, then you are part of a community. Uh, in North Boulevard, we have some smaller campuses. And so some of our smaller campuses might be a community. If we're at East Campus, there's a couple of thousand people there every Sunday, and so it's easy to get lost. But maybe you're in a Sunday school class that has 50 people in it. So maybe that's your community, right? So we want you to be in a community. We want you also to have a family. So a family, that's going to be, the community is going to be sort of that social setting. The family is going to be that personal setting. We want you to be part of a group of people who know who you are, who know if you don't show up on Sunday, who know if you're sick, who know if you're depressed and struggling with something, who know if you're getting off the rails so they can, you know, come give you a swift kick and get you back in, right? So you need uh, a community of 20 to 70 people, that social context. You need a family, a life group, a, a small class, something about six to 20 people who know you. <clears throat> and then you really need mentorship. You need discipling. Um, in that transparent context, two to five people. I'm someone who's a uh, an intense introvert. I do better kind of one-on-one, -on -one, and so that's why we say two to five. A lot of my discipleship historically has been one-on-one, -on -one, but I also have groups of of uh, two, three, or four guys besides me that we'll sit down and we, we go through some books together, and I'm very intentionally discipling them so that they can lead their own discipleship groups. And that happens in a very small group setting so that we can be uh, vulnerable and transparent with each other. But if we're going to help people trust and follow Jesus, we must provide a context for them to be open and honest about what they're struggling with, what their fears are, what their obstacles are, and they've got to be open to uh, receiving uh, teaching, discipline, new habits, accountability, uh, repentance, all these kinds of things. That's only going to happen among people that they, that they deeply love and that they know deeply love them and are going to show them grace and mercy and forgiveness. And that's only going to happen in that transparent setting. So now you know what a disciple is, you know what it means to make disciples, and we're gonna be looking at the process in part three, not tomorrow night, but Thursday night at eight o'clock. And so um, uh, what you ought to ask yourself now is, do I have these three things in my life? Do I have something that I would call a community at this social level? Do I have something that I would call, you know, like a life group or a small group at this personal level? And do I have, a very small group of people, very small group of uh, same gender, transparent group of people where I am really actively being transformed by the word of God. I'd say a lot of us don't have that transparent relationship and we need to get it if we want to look like Jesus, if we want to continue to follow him. We want to trust and follow Jesus and we want to help others trust and follow Jesus. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.